Hello and welcome to Organising to Win, the trade union organising podcast by Unison Northwest. Now, research showing people working in unionised workplaces consistently earn higher rates of pay and enjoy fairer treatment than those who don't. How do trade unions really make a difference to people's working lives and improve paying conditions at work? Well, it comes down to their members and activists, and recruiting, training and developing activists is a key part of any organising campaign and any trade union branch's work. In this September edition of Organising to Win, we're starting the programme with an interview in which Kevin Lucas speaks to two experts on how best to do that. Louise Chinnery from Unison's National Learning and Organising team and Dr Richard Sordry of Plymouth University, who's been researching Unison Northwest's recruitment of activists through our Fighting Fund organising projects since about 2012. Kevin spoke to them about how branches can best build and train their activist base to meet the challenges of the modern workplace. So Richard, can you outline for us some of the key outcomes of your research? Um, yeah, I think, I think the first thing to say is that generally speaking, uh, there were a lot of positives that came out of the work that we did. So most of the new activists that we interviewed felt they'd had a very positive impact on the, uh, had a very positive impact on things like recruitment and had got significant gains for members. So they'd done things like people were talking about, you know, saving people's jobs, representing people in disciplinary and grievance hearings effectively. Um, and I think everybody that we interviewed felt that the union was in a stronger position compared to when they had agreed to become a steward or be, be, agreed to, be, to become trained. So their decision to become a new activist had positive impact, there's no doubt about that. Um, I think also for indiv- some individuals it was very developmental, so they were put into positions where perhaps were challenging or difficult for them and they found that they actually developed, they learned new skills and that helped them both as sort of union activists but also as people to a certain extent. So I think some confidence building uh, came out of it. Um, outside of that there are another, a few other issues which I think were perhaps not problematic but things that perhaps the union needs to be thinking about. One of the, one of the really interesting things that we found was that most of the new activists that we interviewed didn't necessarily join the uh, decide to become a new activist because of some deep-seated political belief in trade unionism or the wider union wider union labour movement. Most of them decided to do take on this role because they wanted to support their colleagues in their workplace. Mm. So they had a fairly narrow focus in in some ways. There were one or two that had much broader sort of a, much broader backgrounds in the labour movement in general. It was people who wanted to help their mates. And I think that's important for a number of reasons. A lot of new activists start out in that way, and it may well be they might develop those broader interests. But I think also when times get tough, those of us who perhaps have got some slightly uh, a broader reason for becoming a union activist or uh, being involved in the labour movement, that, that sometimes sees us through. If simply you're doing this job to try to help out your mates, when, when representing those members becomes slightly difficult or challenging, then that, that they're, they're potentially vulnerable. So I think it just points to the need for some, some greater support sometimes mm. for those people who've become new activists in those situations. Uh, and I think there were three things that perhaps the, came out of our research which the union needs to, to look at mm-hmm. in terms of building support for new activists and, and ensuring that they're 
their, their future role is sustainable and they grow into it. Uh, I think the first thing was there, was there was definitely a need for a degree of mentoring and support. So these, the people that we interviewed were enthusiastic, they'd been trained, they loved the training. But then they were, they were sort of quite often thrown into some quite difficult situations, representing members who now expected this new activist, mm. this new representative, this new shop steward, to deliver a result for them. And that was really, really challenging and really difficult for some people. Some who were in larger branches where there were other representatives had sort of built-in mentors, if you like, within the branch. Um, others perhaps had contacted, had, had come into contact with people, so they come into contact with people on their training course, perhaps people they just knew, or had gone to a branch meeting, had a good experience and been linked up with somebody who they could give a ring, who they could call or they could defer to if they had a particular problem. And those people who had found mentors like that mm. were, had found that incredibly useful and incredibly valuable in sort of helping them through some of the, the, slightly, more, the slightly harder times. Uh, others who didn't have that found it difficult. And there were, you know, a, a number of people who we spoke to who had sort of perhaps quite challenging experiences, maybe representing a member, and they just wanted somebody to talk to on the phone. They just wanted somebody to. Um, you know, to say, look, you know, that's that's nothing, nothing unusual. You know, you, you, one has difficult times in, in this job, mm. and to give them some tips, give them a little bit of advice on some of the more tricky things they were facing. So, developing some sort of structures, perhaps, in those uh, to, to provide that mentoring, not necessarily very formal structures. I think is is, is one thing that came out of the research. Um, secondly, broader sort of networks of support. I mean, a lot of the representatives, well, virtually all the representatives, really enjoyed the the training and they met people and some of them talked about perhaps the potential to be put together in networks or to be, be uh, tied together in some way or links to be made between the, between people they've been trained with or other new activists and for some that, that that didn't seem to have happened so there's perhaps a missed opportunity there in terms of there's a group of people who have been trained together and those the links they made during that training then perhaps like some in some cases seem to like fizzle away a little bit and maybe, maybe that's, that's a bit of a lost opportunity. And again, to provide that sort of support of people who are in the, in, in the same boat, I think would be quite useful. And finally, and it's, it's always a difficult issue, and I think why we certainly wouldn't want to uh, uh, underestimate the, 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 the difficulty of this facing branches, but is the relationship between branches and, um, and those new activists. Mm. And for some new activists, they found, for example, branch meet the times of branch meetings, the locations of branch meetings difficult, and sometimes found the whole the way in which branch meetings are conducted quite quite challenging. It's very new to a lot of these a lot of these new activists. Mm. They've never really been in that situation before, and if they weren't particularly confident in terms of putting themselves forward or asking questions, then there were one or two who we interviewed who went to one branch meeting found it quite a difficult experience and, and to be frank didn't go again. So it's, mm. it's branches being aware of the need to perhaps just induct those new new activists a little bit more effectively, which is very difficult when you when you've got a huge amount of a huge amount of other issues on your plate. However, um, I think that would also potentially sort of really embed them into the into the branch and into the union at this an early point. Mm. No thanks for that. I mean it's it's a really important research from our point of view in terms of informing how we improve that early experience for our activists. Um, I mean, Louise, what, what practical steps do you think uh, existing activists and indeed organisers can be taking um, to ensure that we are 
fully supporting and developing new activists? Yeah, thanks. Thanks, Kevin. Um, I mean, I think we have to acknowledge at the kind of situation and challenges we're facing um, at the moment. And this piece of research is not isolated. We face this across our, our union. Um, uh, you know, th this reflects the real pressure that branches are under. And uh, one of the things that I, one of the biggest challenges I think that we face in terms of developing activists is time, uh, uh, organising staff time and branch, branch time. Um, and our good intentions, I think, with activist development are not always followed through. And so I, I've just got some kind of thoughts about how we approach activist development. And I think we need to, 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 to um, look at this in terms of different types of workplaces. What we do in small workplaces, where our reps from this re research are, are often feeling quite isolated. What we do in bigger workplaces, where we can try to create more of an organising team within a workplace. Um, and then reflecting on how we develop activists in the private sector. Uh, and community and voluntary sector where often activism is met with more hostility from management. Um, so in, in terms of, of, of smaller workplaces, I think we need to find ways of linking activists together. And <clears throat> whether that's physically, it's quite difficult, but whether we can bring people together on a regular basis for development events, maybe not formal branch meetings, but short trainings, or um, you know, bringing people together via a webinar or something. So people are, are act new activists in those smaller workplaces feel connected mm. um, to the the broader you know branch mm. structure. Um, but I think with our reps in in smaller workplaces, keeping in touch with them over the phone regularly. And doing that in a systematic way, mm. so that we keep track of when a, a new activist has been called by by the branch, um, I think is 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 important. And I think um, we have to be realistic about what time we can give to new activists in you know however many workplaces we have in our bigger branches. So keeping in touch over the phone, you know, ten minutes, fifteen minutes every yeah. few weeks. Um, is one practical thing that that we that we can do, and we need to find people in branches, you know, who will do, who will volunteer to do that, play the kind of buddy role, and I think that relationship often develops in in you know this kind of more informal mentoring um, style. In terms of bigger work workplaces, I think, um, you know, I'm quite interested in the idea of us creating more dynamic organising teams in bigger workplaces where we where we um, develop activists through organising, um, not just through rep individual, re individual representation, but, you know, uh, uh, kind of recruiting people to kind of go out there and, and, and have those important one-to-one -one conversations. Um, and I think we need to work out, well, okay, how would, we, how would we coordinate that at branch level? What training might we need? Um, you know, can we run campaigns for those people to be involved with so that they feel they feel that they're learning new skills and part of you know a broader um, 
uh, the, the, you know, the broader union again. In terms of the private sector, I think we have to be aware of that our activist development journey is a longer one in those private sector mm. employ, um, employers where we may face a little bit more hostility. Um, and it is a big deal to put your head above the parapet and, and challenge your manager so that, you know, we should be looking to develop those those act, that, those activist skills and knowledge um, on a longer term basis. Um, I mean, I've, I, you know, there, there, there are also some some other kind of practical things I think we should be to be looking at. Um, you know, every new activist you know, particularly um, our new reps who are going to be required and asked to do individual representation, we should assign them a, a mentor or a buddy. Um, and that means that we should be training our, our mentors or buddies on how to kind of give support um, and, you know, keep in touch with them. So, uh, you know, we make a commitment to them um, just as they will make a commitment to the union. Um, and to, to really kind of um, build on your point, Richard, about how do we uh, create these self-sustaining networks, particularly post-training. Um, I think this is a really um, important area that we need to, to look at. Okay, how, how do we test out, you know, bringing people together on, a, on that training journey and then seeing how they can support each other and maybe return to have more training and development opportunities as a group further down the line. Um, so there's some some kind of practical things that mm. I think we we can do at uh, you know as organising staff and as uh, and at branch level. Yeah, fantastic. And and finally, um, what would be your one tip, Louise, for listeners looking to build a stronger workplace union? Um, my one tip would be there are no shortcuts to building a strong union, and we've got to be engaging in one-to-one -one conversations at the work in, in, in workplaces all over this union. That was Louise Chinnery and Richard Saundry talking to Kevin Lucas at our Unison Northwest organising convention called Skills for Strength earlier this year. Now in next month's Skills for Strength we're going to be producing a special edition about our exciting new organising project in social care in Northwest England which aims to organise the 120,000 or more workers who are doing an essential job caring for people in our communities often with working conditions that are difficult and where pay is all too often low. As a prelude to next month's edition, Unison Northwest area organiser Peter Irwin spoke to Judith Montgomery, a home care worker who Unison helped win a substantial back pay claim when her employer paid her less than the minimum wage. Peter started by asking Judith about her working care and what inspired her to look after people in her community. I love working with people, I love being able to uh, help people who, who need it. I've <clears throat> been doing this job for on and off for the last 20 years. Um, I just like, I just like being with people and I'm good with people. Yeah, so it's, it's yeah. like a, a vocation really? Yeah, it's, I've always wanted to, to, to do something like that, yeah. That's great. Now, until recently you worked for a, a private home care agency called Severcare. Um, could you tell us a bit about your experience of, of working for them in those two years? Well, Savacare was a company. I, I was like working in the community, so I'd be going visiting people in their homes, 
um, and, and assist him where they needed me. So I could, I could be going into somebody's house to give them the breakfast or get them up, get them dressed, get them showered, give them the medication. Um, the, the amount of time I was with people depended on and the amount of time that they'd been allocated. So somebody decided that they, they'd need like 15 minutes for uh, to get get the bre get them up, get them dressed, get, give them the breakfast, or maybe half an hour if somebody you had to get somebody up, get them showered, give them the breakfast, give them the medication. Okay. Um, and what would um, a, a typical working day be like for you during that time? I would probably start in the morning about half six, set off for my first clients, um, and my first client would be about seven o'clock, then. I would have new, probably numerous clients, maybe five, four or five clients in the morning, which would take me up until about half past ten to do. Uh, the the time the time uh, it depended on what the clients' needs were yeah. and what they'd been allocated. Uh, so it could be a, a fifteen-minute call, or it could be a half-an-hour call, uh, and in that time. I could be ex 15 minutes could be expected to get them all washed, dressed, and give them the breakfast and maybe medication, or at a half an hour call, get them up, dressed, washed, medication, and and showered. Well, get showered. Usually a half an hour call with shower. Yeah. Um, and then I'd, I'd go on to my next call. That would take me to about half ten. And then um, I would I would go home. Um, and I would go back out again about half past eleven to do the dinner run. I'd have maybe two or three clients on that. But you, you're driving all the time. You're driving between each client's house. So even though I might for an hour, an hour and a half, I might only be getting three quarters of an hour pay yeah. for, for doing that. Mm-hmm. Then the same. I'd go. I'd go home again. Then I'd go back out again about half past three. Uh, to do the tea time run and have a few clients to be all over Berry. Um, so I'm driving in between clients' houses, giving them the tea, toileting them, medication. That would take me up until quarter to seven, and then at seven o'clock I go straight out onto the bed run. Now, the bed run was getting people ready for bed, not necessarily putting them to bed at that time, but getting them ready for bed, making sure the curtains are shut, giving them medication, or putting them to bed if need be later on. So I'd do that and I'd be finishing about anywhere between 10 and half past 10 at night. Right, so you, you mentioned about the 15 and 30 minute uh, visits, the amount of time allocated to you to do the various tasks. Did you find the, the time allocation to be adequate for those uh, clients? No. Um, I had one gentleman who was a 15 minute call um, and you had to go in his house, you had to inform the you to, to ring in to say that you'd arrived. In that time I had to take him to the toilet and make sure that he was toileted. Um, I had to put a microwave meal, there was always microwave meals, you never had time to to cook anything properly, yeah. microwave meal, make him a hot drink, give him his medication, fill all the paperwork in, um, and clock out again. You know. And how long was that taking you? 
that was taking me about at least 25 minutes, at least. And you'd only be paid for the 15 minutes? I'd be paid for the 15, yeah. And you mentioned as well that you were travelling between clients um, and you you weren't paid for that time either, is that right? That's right, yeah. Um, But understand that you, um, as as a Unison member, you uh, you, you raised that as an issue with your Unison branch. Can you tell us about what happened in regard to that? Yeah, I spoke to uh, Kieran and Kieran pointed out the fact that I was technically still working, driving between clients' houses. I was still working, but the, the company weren't paying you for that time. So it could take me from one client's house, it could take me 20 minutes to drive across across Berry to get to the next one, especially in rush hour. Yeah. And it was all time that's being used up in the day, which is making your working uh, life longer, but you're not getting paid for it. And you're still only getting paid for the time that's allocated for you to be in people's homes delivering the care. Yeah. And what was the outcome of, ultimately, if if you're raising this with the union or your union rep, uh, Kieran at Bolton Branch, flagging it up as, as an issue. You, you, you took a claim and, and how did that, um, how was that ultimately resolved? Well, once it was, once I was aware of the fact that um, I wasn't being paid national minimum wage, um, was advised to like take the company, well, they approached the company actually and, and, and told them that they were aware of the fact that I wasn't being paid, but the company decided to ignore them. I think they contacted them a couple of times. And so it ended up that we were set to go to tribunal in Manchester. Um, and basically, right up until a couple of weeks before we were due to go to the tribunal, there was no contact. They wouldn't provide, they wouldn't provide the paperwork that the union asked them for anyway. Um, so a couple of weeks before, they made me a, a, a nominal, minimum sorry, yeah. payment of £500. Um, but I'd worked out over the two years that they owed me about £4,500 for the travelling time and paid work. Um, and then they made me another offer for... I think it was sort of 750, something like that, more or less at the 11th hour before we were going to the tribunal. Um, and then at the very last minute, they made that offer for 3,250. But like I said, I think they did that because they, were, they knew there was a documentary on the following week. Okay, so, so so you you got a settlement figure of three thousand two hundred and fifty. Yeah. What difference has, has that made to you? What difference did it make at the time? It made a lot of difference because while I was working for Severcare, I was forever using my overdraft. It was costing me to go to work, um, so I paid my overdraft off, um, and. I had a little holiday because I was absolutely mentally and physically shattered. So it's it's made a big difference. And we've talked a lot about Severcare, but do you think this is 
do you think their practices are common with other home care agencies in the private sector? Yeah, it's still happening now. You know, they just don't know the rights. At the end of the day, they don't know the rights. Nobody's going to tell them the rights. So all you can do is just advise people to join the union. And if you've got any questions, just bring them and ask. You know, just join. And it won't cost you anything just to ask. And they'll, they'll advise you. You know, whatever matter it is. Whatever the matter. You know, it could be working times. It could be... You know, we've got people who are going out and working till 11 at night and then they're expecting them back at 7 in the morning. You're supposed to have a yeah. period of rest in between. So, 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 so what, what would be your message then to, to other care workers who find themselves in a similar situation to the one you found yourself in? <sighs> Unless we start standing up, to these companies and unless we, we we do know what our rights are and the only way you can do that is by phoning aircast, joining a union or whatever, these companies are going to do it they're going to continue to do it they can get away with not paying you it's more money in their pockets at the end of the day and I know there's the added problem of a lot of people out there are thinking, you know, well I'm on zero hour contracts. You know, if I start causing waves, they'll start punishing me. If you've got a union behind you, they can't. They can try it, but they can't get away with it. You know, and, and I think that's why a lot of people are scared because they know that they will punish them. Yeah, they feel weak on their own yeah. without that backing. Yeah. I don't think I could have done it without the union backing. You know, because by the time I'd got to, to the point I got to, I was that emotionally wrecked that I didn't know my own name, let alone what I was entitled to or where I'd, you know. That was Judith Montgomery speaking to Unison's Peter Irwin. Well, that's all we've got time for this month, but as I did mention before, uh, we will feature a special edition on the social care campaign next month in the meantime if you want to find out more about it and uh, access other resources relating to this month's program you can do so via our website at unisonnw.org podcast where you can also get in touch with us or listen to previous episodes but for now thanks for listening and take care